It pained me to only listen for a few stanzas of some of those hymns, but uh, I noticed this week a little weakness in the voice when I was yelling at, uh, at lecturing the students. <clears throat> I wasn't yelling at them. <clears throat> Sometimes I raise my voice. It depends on the subject matter, but not at them. There were no disciplinary problems or anything like that. I think it was when I started talking about Charles Ryrie. That's what did it. Yeah, that, that's what did it. Um, but I don't know. Plus, we had, I think, a funeral on the Friday, so some extra singing this week too. Um, but Psalm 80, we continue our glances really at these Psalms of Asaph in the Lord's Day evenings. Psalm 80 to the chief musician upon Shoshanim Aduth, a Psalm of Asaph. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength and come and save us. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears, givest them tears to drink in great measure. Thou makest us a strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt, thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs into the sea, and her branches unto the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood doth waste it, and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return. We beseech Thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which Thy right hand hath planted, the branch that Thou madest strong for Thyself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of Thy countenance. Let Thy hand be upon the man of Thy right hand, upon the Son of Man whom Thou madest strong for Thyself. So will not we go back from Thee, quicken us, and we will call upon Thy name. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts. Cause Thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Amen. The Lord add His own blessing once again to the public reading of His inspired Word. Let's do bow our heads and hearts together with the Word opened before us. Our Heavenly Father, we come to Your presence as we pause to ask help in considering this psalm. And yet the echo of what we've sung, how can it be? Lord, what a Gospel thought. What a Gospel heart that finds occasion to marvel at the fact that God would save 
a sinner such as oneself. It is a gospel heart that thinks such things. It is the self-righteous heart of a false religion that thinks we're worthy to enter your presence. That heaven will somehow be bettered. Lord, how flippantly we even speak at times. Lord, we come today as those that Newton knew well. It's amazing grace that has saved a wretch like me. Well, grant us tonight something of that understanding. Lord, it is something of that that we see in the psalmist. And we pray that it would be true for us. So bless us as we come to the closing point of this Sabbath day in your presence and among your people. And we pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Well, as we've seen all along, these psalms that bear the name of Asaph and his choir are psalms that very often deal with difficult things. Perhaps this choir and this man was called upon to, under the inspiration certainly of the Spirit, to pen the psalms that help us in such times of difficulty, though David's psalms are not lacking in such seasons of life as well. But this psalm, it appears, is a psalm lamenting the fall of Samaria, the northern tribes. One suggested even the the preciousness of those in the south of Jerusalem lamenting those alienated brothers from the north that had for those many centuries then been cut off from them and had even warred among themselves during those days of the kings. Such a sober thing to read that portion of Israel's history, all of it really. But this lamentation for those in the north, it's interesting even if you look at the second verse, one pointed out here, this is, these are the Rachel tribes. Ephraim and Manasseh, of course, those that stem from Joseph as he was given a double portion. And Benjamin, though Benjamin had allied with Judah. But here we see that There's a lamentation, something like the Psalms we've seen before where the enemies look and they mock the condition and the downfall of the Lord's people. And what a place for that to be. As we saw in the last Psalm, wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? The very fact that God gives them up to such times of atrocity is a sobering truth. One the church should constantly remember. But the psalm is one that easily divides because if you look at verse 3 and verse 7 and then verse 19, the closing verse, there's a refrain that is repeated. It's repeated, and we'll see, with expansion each time. And it's a refrain, really, if you consider it, that harks back to the ironic blessing that God's smile, that God's countenance would, would be upon His people and that they would be blessed, therefore, with peace. And so I just want to look at the psalm simply tonight in those three quite obvious divisions. The opening three verses in the divisions aren't, as you see, of equal length. But I think there's an interesting progression, and it's one that is in many ways not expected. Because the first division really is the prayer. And then if you come to the second division, it's a statement of need. 
Usually it's the other way around. We, we think of our needs first and then we, we go to prayer. But it's almost like the symptoms and the need that is outlined in the second section is, well, it's just more symptomatic. The disease is already in mind as the prayer opens. We read, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock. Thou that dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up thy strength and come and save us. The prayer for God to shine forth. The shining of God's face. That God's people might marvel at that. How it is real. How had the northern tribes been distracted and been marveling at far lesser things? And by those lesser things taken away from the face, from the countenance of God, and coming to the point where it's almost like they didn't miss it when it was gone. The prayer here is that God would become glorious to us. That God would become the object of our focus. Pause and think of that. It's easy to come to a church service and to read a psalm and have the preacher talk about the people that the psalm's about. But how often is it that we fall short of this prayer? That we fall short of this desire? That the shining of God's face, that the presence of God, of walking in His presence, of walking by His side, of enjoying Him forever. Kind of like the question and answer of the first part of the shorter catechism is relevant. some ways the prayer is for that very question to be relevant again what is the chief end of man man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever the northern tribes had not been putting their catechism to heart if you will And the psalmist here is given to pray that that would change. Shine forth. The other part of the prayer is for God to stir Himself up. To stir up His might. Verse 2, stir up thy strength before these tribes. Here the prayer is for God to do what the psalmist, what the people of God can't do. Sometimes, I think we can become discouraged and we become overwhelmed when we look at a situation that's gotten so far out of hand, there's nothing we can do about it. We look at a situation, we look at a world, we look at a nation and the nations of the world that have gone so far into sin, into apostasy, into wickedness that there's nothing that the church can do about it. 
The church is too weak. The church is too small. The church is itself too carnal and too worldly, too powerless. Well, it is a sad state of affairs when God's people lose influence. When they have so mingled themselves with the world, have failed to be separated unto the gospel of God, as we read of Paul this morning, that their impact comes to little weight in the eyes of men. But from such a place, and from such an acknowledgement of that place, it doesn't lead us to hopelessness. Because God doesn't need the church. He doesn't need us. He can stir up His might. He can stir up His strength. I've referenced it many times in recent weeks and months, perhaps many from these psalms of distress. God didn't need Israel to convince Nebuchadnezzar that Israel's God ruled. God did that without any help from Israel. Well, it may be we come to the point where we have to pray, Lord, stir up your strength. Because the church, because we don't have any might against this great company. Neither know we what to do. As another prayed, our eyes are upon thee. The third aspect of the prayer, one that God would shine forth, the other that He would stir up His might, but then quite simply that He would save us. Many reflect that the psalmist here, of course in the context, is praying for deliverance from enemies. And that may indeed be a part of the focus and a request and burden of the psalm. But of course we have to understand it in a deeper way. For Israel even to be delivered from her enemies in that tangible way is going to involve God stirring the hearts of His people. I remember years ago in one of our weeks of prayer that one of the younger guys, such as myself, when that was a truth that could be spoken, spoke from the prophecy of Ezekiel. And you see those occasions through the prophecy when the elders would want to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said, I won't be inquired of. And then you come to those mighty closing chapters where God is going to intervene greatly. And of course we have some of our debates about the millennium and all those pieces of the puzzle as it were. But when Ezekiel begins to speak of God intervening in history, of God coming in answer to the prayers of His people and in the fulfillment of His own promises, He says, I will yet be inquired of of the house of Israel to do it for them. I think of the other psalm, Thy people shall be willing in the day of Thy power. We said the phrase often in our prayers in the early prayer meetings. It's been a long time since I've repeated it. But if we're praying for God to do great things, if we're praying in a sense for the day of His power, then included in that prayer 
is going to be a prayer for willing hearts. It's hypocritical, is it not, to pray that God would revive Winston-Salem, that He would save many souls, that He would draw hearts out after Himself, and yet we reserve our own hearts for ourselves. We don't want our hearts to be among the first that are drawn out after Him. We're praying for the day of His power. We're praying for willing hearts. And here, the prayer then is to save us. There's forgiveness. There's spiritual restoration that burdens the psalmist. And he reaches out, I say in prayer, these opening verses, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. What a phrase. What a tender acknowledgement of who God is to His people. And then we have the refrain, turn us, O God, Cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. And then the second portion opens. O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears, and givest them tears to drink in great measure. Thou makest us a strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Here we see the need. And again, it's perhaps unusual that the need follows the prayer. The request, the burdens, as it were, come afterward. But yet that's not necessarily a, a faulty order. We can pray and acknowledge what we're asking God to do and then undergird that with the prayers and the petitions and spreading forth the need as to why. We're asking Him to do it. And you see the things that are put forth here. The first one is unanswered prayer. How long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? That's a difficult not to untangle in any circumstance. But if you look at it in the circumstance, if we're correct in ascribing the the context to this psalm with the fall of Samaria and the northern tribes being taken into captivity. There were prayers that were uttered. There were religious festivals and holidays and services and Sabbaths that were pursued. But yet it wasn't a matter of heart religion. It wasn't gospel worship. The people's hearts were captivated by the gods of the nations. Idols filled Israel. The immorality that accompanied false religion and idol worship filled Israel. Remember Dr. Allison making a point one time. You ever go through the Scriptures and you see even the rebuke of adultery among the people's that spiritual adultery is always the precursor to physical adultery. There's an unfaithfulness to God that is going to precede our unfaithfulness to our neighbor. You see, the prayers are always for us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
and thereby we're helped to love our neighbor as ourselves. Perhaps indeed in the closing years, and even the years since the overthrow by the Assyrians, there were prayers that had gone up. Prayers asking God to intervene. Deal with these ungodly nations. But yet God had a purpose. But here the psalmist is feeling the weight of those unanswered prayers. I wonder how many people are praying in the modern day in our context because of the ungodliness that is permeating our land. Of the apparent victories of the forces of evil in our land. Of idols and immoralities and ungodliness of every stripe. And of the insignificance and even the unbelief and apostasy of the church on every hand. I've been really smitten of late. And when I say that, remember that's coming from a guy whose chronometer doesn't work. I'm talking about like the last quarter century kind of of late. How many people are really concerned about losing America? A hundred years ago, there wasn't as much concern about losing the church, about losing the gospel and its impact on our nation. Well, if we can have prosperity and we can kind of loosen up a little bit on the gospel. But to lose prosperity, to lose freedom, to lose security, to be fearful, to be as the days of Noah when the earth is filled with violence, we can't have that. Maybe we should be as concerned about losing truth we are about losing comforts. Prayers that are going up now perhaps need to search and see maybe different things to ask for than just comforts. Changed hearts. The need went from unanswered prayer to untold sorrow. Tears to drink in great measure. Fed with the bread of tears. Israel was reaping a sad, sad harvest. God had told them plainly in the books of Moses that they had so cast it aside and the prophets came to remind them and call them back to the books of Moses They looked at the prophets and said, what are you talking about? And Jeremiah was, of course it's later in the captivity of the southern kingdom that he ministered, but the prophets of the north, if you've been here for any while, you might remember several years ago, a series from the prophet Amos. It's one of the men the Lord used in my life as a young man. This was stuff I read in Amos that frankly blew my mind. I didn't know it, but God used Amos to start pushing me toward Calvinism. That passage about a famine of the Word. 
And it said they'd run to and fro from the north even to the east to seek the Word of the Lord and wouldn't find it. And I'm scratching my head saying, oh, wait a minute, I thought if people were seeking God, you know, God would be ready to answer. And here God says they're going to try and get Him and find Him and find His Word and He's not going to give it to them. And I just kept reading Amos over and over again trying to figure that out. Well, you see, they had plenty of the Lord's Word and they didn't want it. And there's a phrase in that prophet, which is what brought this little side commercial for Amos. They said the land is not able to bear all his words. All he was doing was telling them what Moses had said. What God had said to them through Moses. And the very stuff they were experiencing then was because of their departure from truth and the untold sorrows that here are given. Tears to drink in great measure. And then the need also points out that there was scorn. Unreserved scorn. Our enemies laugh among themselves. To reach a point in our culture where truth is mocked, where the people of God are mocked, what a sober thing. And so the prayer, the refrain is repeated. Turn us again, O God of hosts. Cause Thy face to shine and we shall be saved. God of hosts, one of those titles. The armies actually in view here. What those armies are made up of is, well, that's the question for Old Testament scholars and commentators to discuss, but... God of hosts. But then from verse 8 down to the end, following the prayer which has the need, following it, now come following up last, as it were, the arguments. One I read had an interesting comment and I think it has the ring of truth about it. I should have written it down because now I'm going to misquote it. We said it seems as you go through the Scriptures that God would rather have His people. Now that's where I should have written it down. Complaining isn't the word. But praying in earnest. Boldly coming to Him. Maybe boldness was the word He used than coming half-heartedly. It's the only way really that we can come to God boldly is when we come with a Gospel plea. It's when we recognize if we come in ourselves, it's only wrath that we deserve. But if we come in the name of another, if we come in the name of Jesus, if we plead based upon God's grace and God's promises, well, there's ground for boldness in prayer. And here the arguments then are brought. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and hast caused it to take deep root and it filled the land. 
The hills were covered with a shadow of it. The boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs into the sea and her branches into the river. And just scanning again, as the Psalms often do, the history of the Lord's people. The Exodus. Him making of them a people and His own people. And casting out the heathen for them to inherit the land. God had worked in days gone by. And so here with that observation of God's mercies and God's power in their history, God glorifying Himself through them in their history, giving the heathen a reason to say, wow, their God is God. Here the argument comes, then Lord, You've worked in the past. We know You will work in the future. Because we have those promises of the latter day. Well, what then of working now? And then, of course, some of the searching begins to come in. Why have you broken down our hedges? And it's interesting from verse 12 so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her. Israel was so overwhelmed that she was in a position where it didn't take an army, as it were. Just the casual traveler could come in and take anything he wanted. They were so defenseless and wasted. And so, an echo of the chief refrain, verse 14, Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and behold, and visit this vine, the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted, the branch thou madest strong for thyself. To remember the promises he had made to his people. Again among them, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And you come through to see verses from 17 on that have almost a messianic ring to them. Some I'm sure would see them as messianic. Others just seeing them as we see Israel was to be the Lord's servant. You think of the servant of the Lord, the servant of Jehovah. And you follow that theme even in Isaiah. Israel, God's people, were to be that. And of course, failed. But there's a point in Isaiah when it shifts. The servant isn't Israel anymore. There's one that rises up to save God's Israel. It's the one the Ethiopian eunuch read of and asked Philip. Whom does the prophet doth write of himself or of another man? And Philip, beginning at that same scripture, preached unto him Jesus. And so the arguments here for God's past work to be a ground of his working yet again, an assurance that he will work again, well, it leads the psalmist in the closing utterance of the refrain of the psalm to add. Another expansion. In verse 3, he had said, Turn us, O God. In verse 7, he had said, Turn us, O God of hosts. 
the close of the psalm, he says, Turn us again, O Jehovah, God of hosts. He adds the covenant name to the last refrain. And of course, this is always a gospel word. We spoke this morning of the unity of the covenant of grace. The covenant name. Of course, this is far more than just blessing for national Israel. This is far more than giving proper vengeance upon their enemies. This is the Gospel. This is the whole picture. And sadly, it's a, a picture of the repetitions of the failures and the backslidings and the apostasies even of the professing church through the ages of history. There are seasons of revival, but then the sin sets in again. It's looking forward to a day in which there will be a revival of such a nature that it will include glorification at the return of Jesus. That His blood-bought people will be in a position then not to backslide and apostatize ever again. But we'll see Him as He is. John tells us the key to not falling into that seemingly relentless cycle of apostasy is to constantly be seeking and seeing more of Him now. To understand Him in such a way that none but Christ can satisfy. Why would I or why would we say, well, there's enough of that. Let's go look and see what the, the heathens are doing in their gods and their worship. And so the refrain of the psalm, in some ways the constant prayer of the church, turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, cause Thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Moses asked to see that face, for God to show him more of His glory. And Moses reflected that glory. Well, that desire and that prayer and that experience, Lord, may it belong more so to us. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we have read Psalm with familiar words. And words even in the day in which they were penned that were an echo of familiar words. The ironic blessing. Lord, how often we can be tripped up. Convince us more of Your glory that we might desire to enter in more to an experience of Your glory. That we might pursue something more of that chief end 
to glorify you and enjoy you forever. So let us, at the close of this Sabbath, hear that repeated prayer. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts. Give us wisdom in the days in which we live. Give us gospel hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.